It's time for today's Lucky Land horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Jamie Weinstein. Starting in November, I will be taking over hosting duties of the Dispatch Podcast on Mondays. But with the world in crisis, I thought I would pitch in a little bit and try to uh, help add coverage to the ongoing crisis in the Middle East. One question that keeps getting brought up on Twitter uh, is, what is international law? Is Israel abiding by international law? Who is even uh, in charge of adjudicating what is international law? To answer this question, I brought in Jeremy Rabkin. He is a professor at George Mason University Scalia School of Law, where he teaches courses on international law and the law of armed conflict. He's also the author of books such as Law Without Nations and the Case for Sovereignty. And 20 years ago, he was my advisor at Cornell University. And with that, to help us answer the question of what exactly is international law, here's Jeremy Rabkin. Professor Jeremy Rapkin, thank you for joining the Dispatch Podcast. Good to be with you. Uh, Domestic law is kind of intuitively understood. If we get a speeding ticket, you know, there's a law that we have to pay or we're going to get in trouble. Uh, We we do a crime to somebody, uh, you punch somebody, uh, you're going to deal with the law. Uh, International law uh, seems a little bit more uh, in the air. Um, What exactly is international law? Yes, people keep talking about it. This is clearly against international law. And you have the sense that um, you could just look it up in the Code of International Law. Um, What you said at the beginning was uh, domestic law was intuitive. Even if it's not intuitive, it's easy to look up. Lawyers who don't have that much sophistication can find out quickly because we know where to go. International law is a very large collection of treaties, many of which present questions about how to interpret them. And then there's a certain body of customary practice, which is, of course, even harder to look up because it's not recorded in one place. So people who say confidently, this is against international law, uh, to say it charitably, they are overconfident. So, I mean, to get more specific, uh, obviously, every time Israel gets into a conflict, uh, you start hearing a lot more about international law uh, than you did before. Um, what are the limits? I mean, obviously, they're fighting an enemy who, you know, doesn't, you know, is a living example of a breach of international law, if there is one. What are the limits of a, of a country like Israel when they get in a conflict of this, uh, according to uh, international law? Yeah, so again, I want to caution People say, like, international law, like there's one treaty. It's, it's actually very complicated. To start with, there's a body of practice, which 
if you're being generous, you could say it goes back many centuries, but certainly was recognized in the 18th century. Uh, and there were books written about it. There was an effort to codify this in 1899 at the Hague Peace Conference. Those are the rules in effect during World War II. As you may remember, during World War II, we reduced most German cities to rubble. A lot of people died. There wasn't a lot of debate about whether that was against international law. And people say the Nuremberg uh, trials were um, victor's justice, which is sort of true, but we didn't charge any... uh, German defendants with bombing of cities because we realized, oh, well, we did that. That's probably okay. So when they say, oh, Israel's uh, violating international law, if they mean anything, they mean this treaty that was negotiated after the Vietnam War. It's called the Additional Protocol to the Geneva Conventions. It happens that Israel is not a party to it. It didn't ratify it. The United States is not a party to it. A number of important countries are not a party to it. So what they actually mean, if again, if they mean anything, is, well, it doesn't matter that Israel didn't actually ratify it because it's become customary law. It helps us understand what the customary law is. This is a unique example of customary law in which hardly anybody actually follows this custom, but it's still become a custom. So they have a very, again, exaggerated idea of this. But to, to, to come to the, I think, the question that you're asking. You are not supposed to aim at civilian targets. Fair enough, right. Israel will say, I think honestly and truly, it's not aiming at civilian targets, it's aiming at military targets. You're not supposed to have collateral damage to civilians if it's excessive in relation to the concrete and direct effect, military advantage of this targeting of military targets that has collateral effect on civilians. That is notoriously disputable, uncertain. We don't know what a direct and concrete military advantage is from any one attack. I believe it is true that there have been a number of war crime trials in the last uh, 30 years. I don't think anybody has been prosecuted, let alone convicted, for failing this proportionality test because it's so hard to apply. So I I can't stamp my foot and say, no, Israel's never crossed this line. They do have very smart lawyers who work pretty hard to like stay on the right side of this line. But anyone who is honest has to admit there's just a lot of uncertainty about how to apply this standard. Let me give you some headlines uh, from news articles that that recently uh, were published from ABC News. The headline is how international law applies to war and why Hamas and Israel are are both alleged to have broken it. In the story, it says, quote unquote, the Geneva-based International Committee of the Red Cross has said the instructions for hundreds of thousands of people to leave their homes, coupled with complete siege, explicitly denying them food, water and electricity are not compatible with an international humanitarian law. You know, it, does the international humanitarian law differ from international law? And is that actually a thing? No, 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 no. That's just, the Red Cross likes to call it that because it implies that the humanitarian considerations are paramount. Which, if you thought about this, you'd realize, well, well, no, that's crazy. I mean, it's like really important to win. And it's not a lot of consolation that, well, we did lose, but at least we protected humanity. If you are fighting a monstrously inhumane enemy, right? This is crazy. It's what they think. 
they, they congratulate themselves on being neutral. And it's worth just reminding ourselves they were neutral in the Second World War. They went through the entire Second World War. They did not have a peep of protest. They didn't even reveal facts which they knew about the Holocaust because that would compromise their neutrality. Um, I a lot of people think, and it is my perception, that although they're neutral, 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 they're neutral leaning third world, and they have a reason to be leaning third world, to use a somewhat out-of-date expression, uh, because Israel is vulnerable to their criticisms. Hamas doesn't care what they say. And Hamas will just say, no, you can't come in here. That'll be the end of it. So they try to accommodate them. They try to kind of curry favor with them. And I think in general, they want the non-Western world to play with them and respect them. So they kind of lean towards uh, accommodating the non-Western world. To, to your question about um, is this, I mean, I mean, the wording of that is a little bit interesting, right? Because they're like, oh, maybe it's not compatible. Um, there's no specific prohibition in the, uh, additional protocol against sieges. Sieges are time-honored practice in war. Um, but that is not even really what Israel is doing. What Israel is doing was saying, we are not going to supply the water or the electricity or the food. If you get it from Egypt, okay, go ahead. Israel is now actually involved in a negotiation to see that Egypt supplies that. But its first position was, you were depending on us to supply it, we're not supplying it, and they are not obligated to supply it. The second thing is, they say, oh, you gave this instruction. What they said was, we're going to be doing a lot of fighting in the northern part of Gaza. If you want to be safe, you should move. And I think it was reasonable for them to say, uh, you really should move, even though Hamas is going to try and pressure you to stay here and continue as human shields. You should move. Because um, you may get very thirsty if you try and stay. I, I, I don't think that is monstrous. I think that is sensible. It's like encouraging people to move to a safer place. The Red Cross has its view of um, how it would fight the war, which is very nice, except it never has fought a war. Its host, its host Switzerland, has not fought a war in 500 years. So I don't know how these people became uh, authorities on what is an acceptable military tactic. And I'm not being sarcastic. The, the, the relevant question here is what is militarily feasible? And you don't know that from sitting on the sidelines saying, I think it would be more humanitarian if you waited a month. Well, maybe it would. I don't know. From an AP story entitled, Experts Say Hamas and Israel Are Committing War Crimes in Gaza, the story goes on to say, Experts Say the Blockade, uh, which is hitting the territories more than 2 million residents, violates international law, quote unquote, collective punishment is a war crime. Israel is doing that by cutting off electricity, water, and food uh, from the Gaza Strip, said Omar Shakir, Israel and Palestine Director of Human Rights Watch. Yes, fine. So this is what experts so-called do. They say, oh, someone was, um, if you remember, there was that incident about, when was it, about two years ago in St. Louis, maybe, um, where the police rushed in and they were shooting and someone was killed. And then everyone said, this was obviously unlawful. There was Ferguson. This was obviously unlawful. It's very easy from the sidelines when you don't know all the facts to jump to a conclusion. And it's particularly fun to do if you like being demagogic and demonizing some, some pre-chosen opponent like the police, or in this case, the IDF. 
they're saying collective punishment. Israel didn't say we want to punish civilians. And I think it's at least complicated to say, what do you mean by collective uh, punishment? Once you admit that actually it's not impossible to have a siege, which again is something that has been done in previous wars. I, I think it is possible that the International Criminal Court, which was, it's never punished anybody outside of Africa so far. It's punished maybe 12 people in all, even in Africa. It's a fairly farcical organization. So it's basically the judicial arm of the UN General Assembly. It, it passes, resolu- you know, it, it makes indictments which it can't follow through on, and then it says harumph, harumph. I think it's possible there will be an indictment of an Israeli. I, I don't know what that shows, except that some people like to um, hurl uh, demagogic slogans. I, I don't think I don't think collective punishment is a, is a reasonable description. Is there a classical definition of collective punishment? It seems that any time someone thrusts their country into war by attacking another, the whole country is in a way collectively punished. So I think what people meant during the world wars was Germany frequently did this thing. This had this practice: if a German soldier is uh, killed or injured, we will take out 30 people from the village where this happened and shoot them down. That is collective punishment. You deliberately cause the death of civilians. You kill civilians as a punishment. I, I think it's a very long way from that to saying if you impose a siege, that is collective punishment. The, the, the premise behind that leap is um, civilians should never be hurt. Which that, That's not a reasonable standard. It's not a feasible standard. And we'll take a quick break to hear from Tax Network USA. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is now over. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with them on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best possible deal. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you are on a fixed income, they can help financially resolve your tax burdens once and for all. Call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit tnusa.com slash dispatch. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. As you mentioned, uh, international law, at least in theory, and what we can say of it, you try to avoid civilian casualties. But in the case of Gaza, can Hamas just put civilians everywhere and say, this is off limits. This this residential building where our headquarters is, is off limits. Al-Shifa Hospital in 2014, the Washington Post said, was a de facto a headquarters of Hamas. This is what we're talking about. Everybody says, I mean, everybody who, like Congressman Tlaib doesn't say this, but people who claim to be so-called experts will acknowledge, okay, it's wrong to use human shields. They will also say once the human shields are in place, you have to be mindful that there are 
civilians. Uh, okay, that's fair enough. But if you allow civilian shields to be an absolute veto on attack, then you're saying that a terrorist organization can always attack with impunity as long as it has first captured some civilian shields, which is insane. I mean, that cannot be our, our war duck because then terrorists would rule the earth. Just, just step back for a minute and think about like real life. Suppose, which can very well happen, a terrorist cell in London grabs a bunch of hostages and then says, uh, don't try and get us out of the court's building or this part of Buckingham Palace or this part of the parliament because we'll kill the hostages. Well, that's really challenging. I think the first thing you might do, which is commonly done in these sort of situations, is you cut the electric power, you cut the water, you do all these things to try to force the terrorists to give up. Um, if you say, oh, well, um, we can't hurt the hostages, then that means we have to provide electric power and water and food to make sure the hostages are taken care of. You're saying they can stay for as long as they want. That, that's crazy. And it doesn't, it's not the practice anywhere in the world because it is crazy. The one word that sticks out from the, the international law course you taught me 20 years ago as a freshman at Cornell, the, the one word... Like in the good old days. Yeah, was reciprocity. Yeah. Not that Israel would want to act like Hamas, but to the extent that the, Hamas is not even, you know, recognizing uh, international norms. Yes. Does Israel have any obligation to if, if they're, their opponents don't? Um, if you go back to the first effort to codify the law of war in 1899, um, they stipulate these rules will only apply in a war where all the participating states adhere to these rules because they were very mindful that otherwise it's sort of a trap. You, you accept restrictions and then the others violate them. So that can't be right. So it would only apply where everyone adheres to the rules. Now, what if some country says we're going to adhere to the rules and then in the course of the fighting, it says, never mind, we're not, we're not adhering to it. Ha ha, tricked you. So they have this doctrine called reprisal. Reprisal is in a way the mirror image of reciprocity. Reciprocity is we hold back if you hold back. Reprisal is you, you violated the rules, so we get to violate the rules to that extent. That can get very ugly. Everybody agreed before the First World War that you should never use poison gas. The Germans did it first, then the Western Allies said, okay, you did it, now we're doing it. In the Second World War, there was this notion that you shouldn't be bombing cities. The Germans did it first, and then Britain said, okay, you did it, now we're doing it. So that can get really out of hand. And I'm not in any way advocating that um, Israel should try to uh, sink to the depths of Hamas and do everything that Hamas does. But people do just have to keep in mind that the law of war was not really designed to deal with a situation like this in which one side has no restraint, none, zero. There seems to be nothing it won't do. And then you expect the other side to fight with perfect restraint and no one gets hurt. That, that it doesn't make sense to conduct a war like that. If, they, if those are your rules of war, you're saying you favor the terrorists, which is, again, just, it's crazy. How are these things ultimately adjudicated? Again, I go back to the beginning question. We know if we violate a law in the United States, you know, what courts we go to. Yes, I thank you for bringing that up. This is when all these people say confidently, oh, this is against international law. They are talking about it as if it is like the Internal Revenue Code 
where we know with a high degree of confidence what various provisions mean because they've been extensively litigated and we have a lot of court decisions, including often Supreme Court decisions. There's nothing like that in international law. Uh, I mean, there is this thing, the um, International Court of Justice, it has virtually no cases about uh, the conduct of war because it's voluntary and no country has ever said, oh yeah, sure, we'll allow you to, to hear this case. So you're down to a handful of very limited uh, tribunals like the International Criminal Court, which as I said, has had 12 cases and not most of them are not even tangentially relevant to exactly how to conduct hostilities. There's a few cases from the Balkan Tribunal but mostly we don't have court cases. And since we don't have court cases, it's wildly misleading for people to say, I know exactly what it means. It hasn't been litigated. It hasn't been authoritatively interpreted, but I still know what it means because it should mean what I want it to mean, right? This is totally misleading and demagogic. I mean, what if, let's say, the ICC took on this case and said, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu, you're indicted, or even Israel Haniyeh, you're indicted, how do they, do they have a force to, to, to arrest them? Who, who if they, they have a force to arrest them, it would be really helpful to arrest them. I mean, they, they, of course they have no way to arrest them. Let's just step back for a minute. Before we were all preoccupied with the Middle East, there was a war in Ukraine. You remember the war in Ukraine. Uh, and people are saying, um, Putin must be held to account because he must be held to account because he must be held to account. Well, that's a nice thought. He's not going to be held to account. I mean, that's not going to happen. The, the only thing that you might hope for is that he'll be overthrown and executed by Russians. I don't even think that will happen. But, I mean, of course he's not going to be extradited to an outside tribunal. And this goes not only for Putin, but for his top generals. So they are trying people who are, you know, sergeants and corporals who they happen to capture, which is fine, but uh, we're not going to have an adjudication. And the likelihood is that if there is a uh, peace agreement, which we all hope there will somehow be a peace agreement, it's not very likely that um, the Russians will say, oh, okay, in return for peace, we're going to hand over our top officials to be tried in the Hague. This just, just doesn't happen. The only way you get the top officials is when you have an unconditional surrender, as in Germany and Japan. So to come back to your question, the Hamas people hopefully will end up dead. If they're not all dead, uh, maybe Israel can have a trial, and maybe that would be satisfying. They're not going to be extradited. I don't believe any Israeli will be extradited. In practice, what you mean when you say the ICC is going to indict them is that uh, whoever is indicted on the Israeli side should not travel to the Netherlands. Uh, We've spoken about kind of the the combatants here, but there are some outside countries that sponsor them, fund them, allow funding to occur. Qatar comes to mind where the the head of of Hamas lives. to the extent that international law speaks uh, of that, uh, is that against international law? Will there be con- could there be consequences for, for funding a terror group? I think it's silly to talk about international law here. These are countries with which the United States has, let's say, uh, shared interests and conflicting interests. And the United States may or may not say to Qatar, if you want to have friendly relations with us, you've got to arrest the Hamas leadership and extradite them. I don't know whether we, we will do that. I don't, I'm not even sure we should do that, but this would be American foreign policy. There's no point talking about international law. So you think the Emir of Qatar cares more about 
what America will do rather than uh, being indicted by the ICC. Oh, he wouldn't be indicted by the ICC. I mean, yes, and I don't think he cares about that either. No, I mean, if you have to ask the question, you're like living in an alternate universe. Of course, they care more about what a real power would do. They don't care what a like silly thing in the Netherlands would do. Is, is there anything else that you think the listener should understand about international law as people use it today or as it was applied hundreds of years ago, or at least thought of a hundred hundreds of years ago? Well, let's not even talk about hundreds of years ago. Let's just talk about a hundred years ago. I don't think there's any doubt that the Allied powers in the Second World War uh, cut some corners, let's say. They did things which would not ordinarily have seemed to be consistent with international law. Um, Just to take like a real clear-cut example, we said to uh, neutral countries like um, Morocco, we're landing troops in your country because we need to. Iceland, we're Setting, we're sending troops into your country because we need to. And sorry about violating your sovereignty. We need to. It's really urgent. And people at the time reasonably said, uh, yes, we are, let's say, deviating a bit from the best standards of international law, but there's not going to be any international law if we lose. And that was a very, I think, clear-sighted and correct understanding. International law is not this magic force that, you know, encircles the world and it makes sure that the bad people are punished and the good people are protected. We hope that God is doing that, but we know from experience not reliably as, as we would hope. So the international law is a slogan if you're engaged in a... Um, struggle with powers that are contemptuous of international law. It's it's up to the powers that are broadly in favor of, if you like, humanitarian restraints in war to win their war. If they don't win their war, there aren't going to be humanitarian restraints in war. And, and so with protecting sovereign states, I mean, Hamas is saying openly, I, I want to add just one quick thing, which is like, which is just Disregarded completely. Hamas keeps saying openly, our aim is the destruction of Israel. You know, it's a member of the United Nations. Hello? The United Nations guarantees the territorial integrity of all the members. Hello? Does that matter at all? Well, it's not going to matter if Hamas prevails. I think it's not going to reliably matter if um, Russia succeeds in carving out larger chunks of Ukraine. So if you care about the UN Charter, you might hope that the good guys win these battles and not pretend that it's just a given that if you are good, then the other people will be good and international law will protect all of us. This is is completely escapist and silly. Professor Rapkin, thank you uh, for joining the Dispatch Podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.